You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its uh, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly, stone, partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so that they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day that you have given us. We thank you that you have promised to meet us here in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, and in the midst of our shame. In the midst of the doubts that we have, the weight that we bring to church, the things that we have uh, trouble confessing to you and each other. In the midst of all of that, you've promised to give us your grace. And you've given us this word, Lord, that you 
may build us up, that you may show us things that are too wonderful for us. You would give us joy and hope in what is to come, and that we would be comforted, and that we might comfort others with the comfort we have received. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed speak through your word, that you would make it powerful by your spirit, and that you would confirm it with your sacrament. We ask that you would produce in us, by your spirit, a love for our neighbors. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's fitting, I think, that I preach about the meaning of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream this evening. Because there's something that's true about me that is not true about Charles, as wonderful as he is. And it's simply this, that I grew up in a town called Benson, Arizona, which is about an hour southeast of here. Now, there's not much in Benson, or much for me to say about Benson, except there is this one thing that you will notice about it as soon as you start driving east of Tucson. You will start to see signs for a mysterious place called The Thing. Now, The Thing is a travel center just outside of town. And what is the thing in the thing? That is the question. And if you want to pay about $3, at least that's what it was when I was in middle school, you can find out exactly what the thing is. Now, the thing uh, is kind of like our text this evening. It produces a similar question in us uh, as this dream, especially this great image. The major difference, of course, is the significance. Uh, I would hope that no one is losing sleep over a travel center just outside of Benson, Arizona. But as we read about this dream and how strange it is, we see that it is causing the king to lose sleep. We will see also, though, that as strange as it is, we have a place in this dream. And this is the main truth that we will see here tonight that the image that we are tempted to think we cannot live without, the stone will pulverize for our sakes. Now, such a statement may seem perplexing, kind of odd. We're not even sure what this image means, let alone that it plays any significance in our lives. Furthermore, as we begin to understand what this dream means, our natural reaction is to identify the particulars with very clear-cut groups. That is, the image is bad, and the stone is good. And yes, the stone indeed is good, but it's not quite that simple. Therefore, we may think about this image. Uh, how, how is this something we can't live without? How is it something we're tempted to think we can't live without? We don't even know what it means. Well, to deal with this question, we're going to examine the parts of this dream and its interpretation in three segments. Uh, first, we're going to examine the image. Then we'll look at the stone. And finally, we'll look at the Apostle Peter and we'll look at ourselves. So first, the image. As you all saw last week in the first part of chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by a dream. 
He is so troubled that he gives this decree to all the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and especially the Chaldeans. Uh, that they cannot, if they cannot tell him the dream and its interpretation, they are dead meat. Now, this is significant because we are told in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that this includes, the Chaldeans include the youths of the royal family as well as the nobility of Judah. These are the youths that are being trained up in the ways of the Chaldeans, which includes Daniel and his friends. And so Daniel and his friends get wind of this. They seek God's mercy in verse 18. The Lord hears their prayer. He reveals the dream and its interpretation to them. And as Daniel's rushed into the king's presence, he proclaims this truth to Nebuchadnezzar in verses 27 through 28. No wise man, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now this is significant, first, because it links Daniel 2 with Genesis 41, where we see that Joseph is called upon to interpret dreams for the Pharaoh of Egypt. The similarities between these two episodes are well documented whenever you read uh, commentaries on the text and the like. But the most significant link between these two passages is that these two Hebrew interpreters, while they are both taken captive into these foreign Gentile lands, their methodology for interpreting is meant to stand in stark contrast with the likes of the magicians, the sorcerers, and other forms of divination. You see, both Joseph and Daniel share a common confession in Genesis 41, 25, and Daniel 2, 27 through 28. When they say that Yahweh is the source of revelation, both dreams and their interpretation. And this is an important polemic because it contrasts uh, them to the Gentile forms of gaining knowledge. It contrasts them by saying that Yahweh is the one who speaks. And those who hear what Yahweh has to say can know with certainty That it will come to pass. And that Yahweh's speech is not only true, but it does what it says. This is an important reality we'll see as we come or go through this text. So we begin in verse 31. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, its appearance was frightening. The image has a head of fine gold, which Daniel interprets in verse verses 37 through 38, to be Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now again, before we uh, we place what we are observing here into overly uh, simplistic categories of image bad, stone good, look what Daniel says about the source of the king's rule. He says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. You see, the Lord is the source of the king's power. And therefore, what is said about Babylon here and the nations that follow after Babylon is not a wholesale condemnation of their ethics, though he certainly has something to say about their ethics. No, what is said here in this vision, first and foremost, is a declaration of the finality of these kingdoms in light of the true king, 
And that is what is true about the rest of the image. You see, we continue with the chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And in verses 39 through 40, we see a progression of inferior kingdoms on, and it's, uh, we see this progression of uh, greater kingdoms to lesser kingdoms. And it seems best to understand these kingdoms as the following empires as we progress through history. You see, the head of gold is, of course, the Babylonian Empire, and the breasts and the arms are the Medo Persian Empire. The midsection and thighs are the Grecian Empire, and the legs and the feet are the Roman Empire. And I don't intend to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to kind of assume these are the kingdoms and move on, uh, because the ultimate point here is not the specific kingdoms themselves. But by pointing to these kingdoms, it is to gather in all the kingdoms of the earth. You see, these are the major kingdoms. And even Babylon at this time has this kind of claim to a seeming universality. It's kind of as if uh, one of you were to have a dream now uh, and dream up a G7 conference. You would functionally be dreaming up all the power in the world, even if it is only seven nations. So by including all of these kingdoms, the Lord is speaking to a fundamental truth that we have only alluded to ourselves. You see, by identifying them with the image, the way of kingdoms, earthly power, and influence are deemed temporary. That is, they are deemed fading and incapable of bringing about God's eternal purposes. In fact... The problem with all these nations is not that they are fully corrupted by sin. You see, all of these nations are an exercise in God's common grace, his providence over the world. But the problem with these kingdoms is that earthly power is antithetical to the power of God. And so in that sense, earthly kingdoms stand opposed to God's power, and they are condemned. And yet, how often is it that we are tempted to believe that it is political clout, popular influence, or how much power and sway that the church has in culture, that the, the end of God's kingdom, the goal of God's kingdom is reached. You see, we are tempted to believe And this is often the source of much of our anxiety as we think of kind of the corporate church. As we kind of think about all churches throughout the land, we are often tempted to believe that if the church loses influence, if the church loses power, if the church loses the sway and some kind of voice into the powers that be, that God's kingdom purposes are thwarted. And yet what we miss in that anxiety is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Again, the great temptation in this image is not that it is completely corrupted, but it is to believe that in the end of the image, in the end of earthly power for the church, 
that we too, as God's people, have met our end. And that is simply not the case. You see, that is when we are tempted to think we can't live without the image. It's when deep down we believe that God's purposes, what God is doing for us, for our salvation, for this world, and even for these nations, is dependent on earthly power. And that is simply not the case. In fact, earthly power stand against God's kingdom power. Because that is true, it leads to our second point, in which we examine what the stone means. We are introduced to this stone in verses 34 through 35, when it says this, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You see, with the strike of the stone, all the kingdoms are pulverized. This is how thorough their destruction is, and this is how indiscriminate their destruction is. You see, the stone starts as this small thing. It starts as this insignificant thing. And the reality is, until Christ comes, it will always appear insignificant. It will always appear weak. It will always appear as a foolish thing. But then it grows. It grows as it is disregarded, as it is uh, not given attention, as it is seen as a small thing. And so we get the interpretation in verse 44 through 45 when it says, And in those, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And again, it broke into pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. There are a couple of key items to note here. First, notice that the stone begins. This kingdom that God is establishing in the days of those kings. We mentioned before that the Roman kingdom is the last kingdom that is represented here. And as you may know, that when Christ was born, Israel was under Roman occupation. That is why we even read in Matthew and Luke that Jesus was born during the days of Herod the king. Because Herod was simply a client king, or even you could say a puppet king for the Roman Empire. And if there is indeed any doubt that when Jesus was born, when he comes onto the scene in the Incarnation, that he is bringing a kingdom that will stand against earthly kingdoms and earthly power. We read these words, these famous words in Mark 4.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now the second observation is this. Whereas earthly kingdoms are founded and maintained by human ways of power, God's kingdom is cut by no human hand. Meaning for us this fundamental truth. This truth about God's kingdom. 
It is not something that can be brought about by human powers, but it must be received as a gift. You see, this is why so much of Jesus' ministry scandalized the Pharisees. Because he could go around, because this kingdom is a gift, because anyone who through faith can waltz right in, he can say scandalous, crazy things like this to them. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And he said this to his followers as well. If there was any doubt that this kingdom could be for them. If there was any doubt that he would consider them. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, that this kingdom of God is a gift. And that this kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus is, not, is the only conclusion that we can draw from this prophetic dream. And it is no wonder, therefore, that one of the ways that Jesus thought about his own life, his own ministry, and one of the ways the apostles speak of his ministry is with the words of Psalm 118, 21 through 23, when he says this, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, this is why worldly power is such a sinister threat. It's not because it doesn't have its place in this world and how things kind of move and how God kind of preserves the creation. But worldly power is a sinister threat to the church because it must be pulverized. It must, in the end, come to an end because of what God is ultimately doing. And it's so easy for us to cling to because it feels right by nature. Worldly power is the only power that we by birth have ever known until God breaks in with his power and his kingdom power that is antithetical to the ways of the world. And this leads to our last observation in which we look at the Apostle Peter and you. You see, with a name like Rock, surely this passage has something to do with Peter. Uh, and for it to be worth your time tonight, I mean, I know there are hot dogs, so stay for that. Uh, but to be worth your time tonight in an ultimate sense, surely this has to do with you. You see, in Matthew 16, 13 through 19, we find a familiar text that is loaded with allusions to the book of Daniel. And particularly to our text in chapter 2. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. A figure from Daniel 7, a passage that we will see in a few weeks, is very closely related to chapter 2. And we know without missing a beat that when Jesus asked his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus says to this, these words that we know but are so astounding, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now remember, in light of that, the words of the dream, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And continuing on, we see this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember again the words of the dream. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And don't miss this part. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loosen on earth shall be loosened in heaven. What does this mean? Well, in John 20, 21 through 23, we see the corollary passage that kind of sheds light on it. Just after Jesus has been raised and he has met with disciples and he is getting ready to ascend into heaven, he says these words to him. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So what does this all mean for you? Well, it means this, that this kingdom, this kingdom that is described as a stone, this kingdom that is cut by no human hand, this kingdom that will eventually pulverize the image, this kingdom that the gates of hell will not prevail against, this kingdom that is founded, on Jesus being the Christ and closely linked with a man named Rock because it is a gift, because it is something that he is doing, because it is something that you are not obtaining on your own. You can know without a doubt that it is yours simply through these words of the gospel. For Jesus Christ's sake, all of your sins are forgiven. Now, Peter didn't initially take too well to this. Because as soon as Jesus starts describing that this must come through the cross, that the the place, the central point of the kingdom's power, the cross, Peter pulls Jesus aside and gives him a little lecture on how power is supposed to work. Uh, Jesus, I don't know if you read the instructions, uh, but this is not how kings do things. Uh, They don't get crucified. They don't get put to death. And of course, you know the words. You know how Jesus responds to it. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, that is the problem with God's kingdom power. And that is why earthly kingdoms are antithetical to it. Because God's power is in Christ's suffering. God's power is in the death of Christ. It's in the resurrection of Christ. It's in the ascension of Christ. And God's powering comes in the midst of your sin. God's power comes in the midst of your shame. God's power comes in the midst of your doubt, your suffering, your guilt. It is in the midst of that in which God's power is made known through the gospel. You see, Peter would eventually come around to God's power. And that's why he would write about this very stone in his first epistle. He would say to these listeners of his, and he would say to you now, that as you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones 
are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the scandal of this is even King Nebuchadnezzar got this in some sense. That's why he too would respond to Daniel's prophetic gift. When he'd say, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. You see, the, the mystery of the kingdom, the kingdom that is coming down from heaven, the kingdom that, though it appears weak, though it comes through the words of the gospel, though it is confirmed through simple things like stale bread and not great wine, no offense, Charles, I know it's your choice, um, uh, you know, the kingdom is coming in the midst of these things, and it is a strange thing. And yet it comes because it is Jesus' very life for you. Jesus' very death for you. Jesus' very resurrection and ascension for you. You see, that is where the kingdom is found. And so thus, his words do what they say. They bring about new life. They bring about forgiveness, healing, wholeness. And they will one day do that all when Christ returns. You see, the effect of this spreading kingdom as it goes throughout the whole world, all throughout the nations, in light of what Christ has done to conquer sin, death, the devil, and even the curse of the law, is that people from every tribe, every nation, yes, every kingdom, are now confessing along with Nebuchadnezzar that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one day Christ will return. And when he returns, he will set all things right, and he will bring an end all earthly power. Again, not because it is completely corrupted, though there is that, um, but because it is antithetical to what he is doing. It is limited in what he is doing. It does not have the power to forgive sins, bring new life, or give people grace. And thus, all forms of earthly power must eventually bend their knee to the power of the kingdom which is the gospel. And it is the power and the way of the king of grace, from whom we have all received from his fullness, grace upon grace. So in conclusion, this is how the kingdom uh, comes to you. This is who the king is for you. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is the love that will not let you go. Now, if I may... um, as someone who is going to be one of your shepherds. Um, Whether I'm here for six months or six years, I want to now promise you before God uh, and before you, his people, that I will assist in leading you, not with a heavy hand, nor with chiding, but with grace, with the good news of what Jesus has done for you, his people. That is my hope. And by God's help, I seek to do that. And so now know that by the life, death, and resurrection of your king, you have the kingdom and you have his grace. Amen.